0: One of our family traditions is that Believe Day is a day that Julie and I get to share with you one of the greatest blessings we have ever been given in our lives. Pastors David and Lisa Hughes pastored the amazing Church by the Glades in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which is a phenomenal family of faith and church in its own right. Now you've heard David speak here before, most of you if you've been around any amount of time. But let me just give you a little bit of background, if I can. David began pastoring Church by the Glades when it wasn't even Church by the Glades. It was, at the time, Coral Springs Baptist Church. And it was a very, very small, small, and I'm going to just tell you the truth, too. It was a dysfunctional church. Have you ever heard about a dysfunctional church? Well, this was one of them. And David came in there, led by God, and has created God has created, through David and Lisa's pastoring, one of the great churches in our nation. They had about two or three hundred kind of people who loved to go to committee meetings. That was what was driving the church at the time. And David said, you know what, I think maybe Jesus has something bigger for the church to be. And they have become an amazing force for the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ in South Florida, which I don't know if you've ever been there. South Florida is not the Bible Belt. You know what I'm saying? But they are making a huge difference in thousands and thousands of lives every single weekend and every single week throughout that region and are doing incredible things. David and Lisa are unbelievable. But Julie and I have gotten to spend some time with the greatest, most amazing thing about David and Lisa, and that's their kids. We've gotten to be around... Charlie and Victoria and Zane, and we get to see up close and personal what real family looks like through the Hughes' family. They are some of the most amazing students and young people we've ever been around. So I want to ask you if you will please stand to your feet and join me in welcoming Pastor David Hughes.
1: Listen, the honor is so much all mine. I, I love me some Lake Hills. I love I get to come back. This is probably, I think, my fifth time with you. Uh, it's always this weekend. I am the Believe pregame show. That's my role and my function in your life. Glad to be that. Um, and I, I kind of feel like I'm not a guest preacher anymore. We have guest pastors in, in our place all the time. I, I, I feel like I've been with you enough that we're, we're friends. I feel like we have a connection, rapport. I, I feel like we're family. Can I be part of your family? Is that okay? I might show up in the Christmas card this year. Part of your family. And I'm probably that part of the family feels a little closer than he probably should. You know that, that family member, they come over, first thing they do is take off their shoes and, you know, go to the fridge without being invited to go to the fridge. And they take a nap in one of the bedrooms. I'm probably that guy, but I'm glad to be with you, uh, Lake Hills, because you are an amazing, amazing, turf-taking, Great Commission-obsessed church. And this is a movement of God, and I know it's good manners to say nice things about the host pastor, but listen, no embellishment, Um, Mac and Julie are are the real deal. They're amazing friends. They love Jesus. They do family remarkably well. You know, you are so blessed. You need to be clapping louder. You are so blessed to be loved and led by Mac and Julie, and uh, we just cherish you guys. Thank you, Mac, for letting me stand where you typically stand. And because I know how gifted you are at expressing spiritual truth, it's a little intimidating for me. But I'll do my best. Let's jump in here. We're going to be in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 4 in a moment. Hebrews chapter 4. And let me give a little bit of a uh, pastor insider. Pastor insider, I mentioned about guest preachers and guest speakers. Uh, for a pastor, sometimes it's an awkward moment when you have a guest speaker that you've not had before and they come on the stage because there's typically some required etiquette of physical contact. Right, I actually started asking cuz some people are not real touchy. I've asked guest speakers, what do you hug, handshake, high five, what do you want? Cuz we're all different when it comes to how we uh, express physical touch when you greet somebody. let's just survey the crowd right now. Who here you're you're a hugger. You're a hugger. Come on hands up huggers. Oh, you're secure. Put your hands up. Be proud. Come on, huggers, huggers. Oh, you hug. I'm not just talking about family. You hug people you're meeting. Any huggers over here? Any huggers over here? This is a little bit of a non-huggy says That's okay. How about up there in the cheap seats? Any huggers? Any huggers? Yes. Who, on the other hand, you would say, I'm on the complete opposite side of the physical touch continuum. I I, I don't want to hug. I don't like a hug. The, the less touch for me, the better. Come on, hands up. Hands up. Come on, Julie Richard. Hands up. And come on, own it. Just own it. We're not going to make fun of you. Maybe a little fun of you. You're a germaphobe or something. That's okay. That's fine. That's fine. So not knowing how someone comes down on this issue, you got to be careful. Like, where's the huggers again? Where's the hugger men? The hugger guys? Hugger guys? I mean, come on, guys, guys, guys. All right, let's pick on brother in the front row. Would you come here? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I'm not raising my hand for anything else the rest of the day. Only time I'll embarrass someone. What's your name? AJ. All right, AJ Listen. Uh, I want to demonstrate for the, wait a minute, come on, come on. I want to demonstrate for the huggy man, the huggy man, because maybe you're with somebody who's not a hugger. What I believe is the acceptable, dare I say, biblical way to hug another brother. Here we go. Come on, AJ. Come over here. I think you go with this. I think you have that one hand. Oh, he's right in. Ready? Pats. Three at most. Ready? One, two, three. The most important part, clean break. Clean break. Very important, because nothing worse than a brother comes in for a hug and says, hey, man, how you doing? Lays his head on your shoulder. Rubs your back. That's awkward, that's awkward. Clean break. AJ, thank you for AJ. AJ, thank you, man. Yeah, hugs. Nothing worse than that guy. We got a friend of ours. He loves to give the awkward, too long, man a hug just to mess with you. All right, so a little a little just extra bonus, no charge for that on how you greet people. But how do you welcome the Word? How do you receive the Word of God? How do you come to a moment like this? We're about to study God's uh, relevant revelation for us. How do you welcome the Word? Here, here's what I recommend. Uh, church, I know you. I know your Bible teacher. You guys don't fist bump the Word. And you know, the fist bump, that's the least amount of physical contact you can give to someone and still physically touch them. You don't fist bump your Bible. When it comes to the sacred scripture, you come in for a long, awkward hug. You press in. You embrace God's Word. Let's do it together today. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Let's say a text together loudly. Ready? Hebrews chapter Come on, you guys had more rest than the last service. Here we go. Hebrews chapter There you go. My my church is a rowdy church, man. They respond a whole lot, so that'll help me speak if you'll respond. Deal? Deal. That's good. All right, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. I want to press in. I want to hug just one amazing scripture. In fact, I want to focus on one phrase in a very famous passage. For context, Hebrews is about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 is about his priestly ministry, how as a Jesus follower, as a saved person, I have access to God. I can come before the very throne of God, the Bible says, not cowering, but with confidence, with with boldness because of what Christ has done for me. And then this remarkable passage, Hebrews chapter four, uh, Hebrews chapter four, it says something about the Bible. The Bible self-defines in a wonderful way. Of course, it's there in your scriptures on the screen. Look what the Bible says about itself. It says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The author of Hebrews, Anonymous, says the Bible is like a weapon. It's like a sword. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 echoes the same metaphor. It says the Bible is a spiritual sword. It is the word of truth. The Bible is your, your weapon. You should be a spiritual ninja and good with your sword. Now, when the Bible says it's a sword, I believe in something called... The inspiration of Scripture, I believe every part of your Bible has been God-breathed. In fact, I believe your Bible is a perfect book. I believe in the infallibility of Scripture. I'm weird. I believe that uh, every single word in the Bible, God put their own purpose. I don't think God ever stutters. I don't think there's any typos in the Bible. I think every word in your Bible, God placed there with divine intent. So the Holy Spirit inspired the author of Hebrews to give some qualifiers, descriptive terms about what kind of sword it is. Put the verse back on the screen again. It says quickly, we'll work through this together. It says, for the Word of God is living and active. It's living and active. What does that mean? I think it means this. Ever walk in these doors, and at the end of the sermon, you're like, how did he know? How did he know? How did Pastor Mac know that exact thing that I'm dealing with? How did that, that pastor know? He spot, he spoke in the very issue. I, have they booked my house? Has he hacked into my email? How did he know? Man, that's God. That's the Word of God being living and active. And God getting all up in your stuff. You pray this prayer when you walk in the door. Say, God, I'm open. I am receptive. I'm pressing in. I'm, I'm hugging. I'm attentive. I, and whatever you show me, God, even before you tell me what it is, my answer is yes. Whatever you call me to give or sacrifice, what commitment you'd have me to make, my answer, take a sharpie, write it on my head, yes. You pray that prayer. Watch church become not just powerful, profound, but very personal. God will get all up in your chili in a beautiful way. Because the Word of God, it is living, it is active, then it says it is sharper, it is sharper. Now, I found the Bible is the most encouraging, inspiring book ever written. But occasionally, I'll read something in the Bible, or I'll be in a context like this when someone's teaching me Scripture, and I'll hear something that's like, oh, ow, wow, it's conviction. And even when your pastor teaches with an optimistic attitude, once in a while, you'll get some correction. That's called a sword, a sharp, a sword. You know, swords are not designed to pat people on the back. They're designed to slice. And then there's another qualifier. And this is the one I want to camp out on for a moment. Because, again, I think God put this little phrase in this verse on purpose. It says that the Bible, the Word of God, is living, it is active, and it's sharper than any two-edged. Any two-edged sword. Two-edged. When I say three, you say two-edged. Ready? One, two, three. Two-edged sword. Two. What does that mean? Here's what I think it means. Sometimes there's something in the Bible that is confusing. Anybody ever read anything at least once in your life in the Bible that confused you a little bit? Anybody ever? If your hand's not up, you've not read your Bible. Yeah, I mean, I'll admit it. I'm a pastor and Bible teacher. Occasionally I read something. I'm, I'm confused because I'll read in the Bible like in one place it'll say like something. Then I'll go to another place in my Bible and will say something that seems not to agree with the first thing. Like this over here says this, but this over here says that. And it seems like the Bible, I'm confused, it seems like the Bible is contradicting itself. It seems like a contradiction because this one place says this, and the second place says that. In fact, uh, I'll own it, sometimes the Bible confuses me. Now, this is just the reality of the Bible being a living word, a God book, divinely inspired about a God who's unlimited. But here's where it becomes problematic I have found Christians, two, two Christians, of equal sincerity, equal intelligence. And one can look at one of these places as somewhat controversial or confusing. And one, a good conscience, comes down over here. While the second looks at the exact same passage and he comes down over here. That's not a problem except we start putting ourselves in little camps. And camp out in our camps. And we put other Christians in other camps. And we start debating and arguing, get very distracted by the Word of God. See, what is the problem? Why is occasion the Bible seem to have a duality? It's because I believe it's a double-edged sword. I think sometimes there's a truth that cuts both ways. And it's not really a contradiction. These two ideas actually complement and complete each other because it's a book about God. A God a little too big for us to understand. Amen? Amen. Oh, you look like you need some illustrations of what I'm talking about, this dynamic of duality you see in the Bible. Not a dichotomy, a duality in the Bible. Let me give you a couple here. How about one that might uh, relate for your church, your church? Because you are a, uh, well, Lake Hills, you're a very creative church. Your leaders and pastors and your tech team and musicians, man, you guys do so creative stuff. The, The themes you guys have studied, prison break, icebergs, the struggle is real, thrones, you guys did a throne series? Did you leverage like a popular TV show, thrones? That's creative. In fact, as an aside, right now, my favorite moment because I watched thrones was week number two when Julie came out and introduced the talk, and Julie was on the stage. I think I have a picture of Julie Richard. There you go. Julie, you've never looked more appropriate or better. But that's creative. I mean, you got, cre- look at your stage right now. You're doing Christmas in mid November, and you got a dead deer on the stage. I promise you there's no church in Florida with a dead deer on the stage. But, man, that's, that's just creativity. So here's the question that becomes, well, should I uh, be about a church or go to a church that, that embraces creativity or one that embraces content? Should I be part of a really deep church that's doctrinally driven, uh, the teachings are heavy and sophisticated, or should I be part of one of those creative, engaging churches, you might even call it entertaining? Which, which should it be? Should the church of Jesus Christ... Be creative, or should it be content-driven? The answer would be both. When I say three loudly, say the word both. Ready? One, two, three. Both. The Church of Jesus Christ should be? Should be But what? Why do you have to choose? I love creativity. Our church is a creative church. I love when church is wonderfully undogged. I love you guys. Walk in the doors here at Lake Hills. What are they going to do this week when church is powerful and predictably unpredictable? Creativity is a great thing. At the same time, your pastor can teach at a very deep, sophisticated level. Now, I love you blunted and you've done both. And again, let the sword, let the Bible, let theology always drive your methodology. Who, who was the greatest communicator in the Bible of deep spiritual truth? Answer, Jesus in church, if you don't know the answer, guess Jesus. You're right, two-thirds of the time. So who was the most sophisticated teacher of complex doctrine? It was Jesus, right? And so Jesus taught at such a deep level. And he taught on a plethora of subjects. You know, heaven, hell, life, death, time, eternity. But Jesus taught these really deep ideas in common language that common people could understand. And then he leveraged creativity. The wonder of the miracles that left his crowds astonished. He, he, would, he would teach in these powerful parables, illustrations, word. In fact, I would argue Jesus leveraged pop culture. He talked about popular things people in his day would recognize readily. He, he talked about farmers and their fields, told stories about fish and fishermen, kings and their kingdoms, servants and stewards. Used these recognizable things to connect the gospel with his people. I think you can be. Both. I think the church can be sensational and substantial at the same time. You are that kind of church. The right answer is both. It's a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. And by the way, just a word, because occasionally you'll meet like a very deep Christian out there, a very deep, sophisticated, heavy Christian that will hear like, Lake Hills Church, you guys do creativity, therefore you must be shallow or superficial. Here's how you respond. Say, hey, hey, deep theological brother, what is the first attribute of God we discover in the Bible? What's the first quality of His activity or character? Do we learn that He's graceful or merciful or or, or, or compassionate? No. What's the first thing we learn about God's what? In the beginning, God did what? In the beginning, God... In the beginning, God did what? The first thing we discover about God is His creativity. It just makes logical sense to me that the church of the living God should reflect the creativity of God. The first thing we learn, our God is creative. Be like God. Should the church be creative or should it be content it should be both it should be both. how about this uh how, how about the age should our church be a, a young church an old church maybe somewhere in between you know uh, this church lake hills are you guys an old church a middle-aged church or a, a, a young person church what are you you're you're all the above right you are a multi-generational church i think that is beautiful Ever been to a church? Don't raise your hand or answer out loud. Ever been to a church and you walk in the door like everybody looks exactly the same? And they all kind of look the same, dress the same, all drive the same SUVs, minivans in the parking lot. Uh, you come in, everybody's kind of the same age. Ever walk into a church, maybe like everybody there is, is older or they're all just punk 20-somethings. Or like like, right, wow, I think the church should be diverse. I love the churches of our church is really diverse. We're diverse racially and culturally and socioeconomically, but we have the generations. And I love what Pastor Max said. I thought this was amazing. Here's what you guys endeavor to be. Yeah, I know you said it this week and last week. He said, Lake Hills is a church of all generations. Means whether you're young or far from young, this is your church. If you're old or just not even near old, this is your church. We are a church of all generations committed to reaching the what? Reaching who? Now, wait a minute. Is that a statement of, of, of preference or something? No, it's a statement of, of, of philosophy. You're multigenerational, but you're going to press into the young. Now, guess what? If I go to the Word, if I go to the sword, I think that's actually a very biblical idea. I taught my church last week a, a very famous narrative, a story uh, from Luke chapter 8. You can read it for homework if you want to. Luke chapter 8, I love this story because, number one, is a Jesus story. If it's a Jesus story, I'm all in. But on top of that, it's a miracle story. And I love when God invades someone's life with supernatural power. And there's not one miracle, there's two miracles. Actually, it's one miracle interrupting the next miracle. What it is, it's a story about a man named Jairus. And Jairus was a synagogue leader, we discover in Luke chapter 8. And, but he runs to Jesus, he falls at Jesus' feet, he asks Jesus for help. And that was very atypical because synagogue leaders didn't typically run to Jesus. They tried to run Jesus out of town. They were adversarial, but this man, he, he comes to Jesus. Why? His kid's sick. I mean, she's really sick. And the Bible gives us a detail. This little girl is 12. She's 12 years old. How old is she? She's, she's 12. Important detail. I think every word in God's word is there on purpose. We get this, this detail. Some people say the devil's in the details. No, divinity's in details, all right? That she is 12, that she's 12. So Jesus said, I'll go with you. I'll, I'll go to your house. I'll touch. I'll heal your daughter. See, if you invite Jesus into a relationship you invite Jesus into your life your reality? He always says yes. So the Bible says Jesus is making his way through a crowd. Not a cute crowd. It says a crushing crowd. There's a whole bunch of people. You make church about Jesus, people show up. You get crowds in the parking lot. Man, crowds in church. Got to build things and make things better, man. Crowds are biblical. Crowds are beautiful. Amen? Means you make church about Jesus. So Jesus is working his way through the crowd. He's going with Jairus. Jairus is not sure of his age. He's a dad, but his daughter, she is... 12 then the bible says a miracle is about to happen there is a woman that kind of wants a miracle too and the bible gives us a little word In fact I'll put a verse on the screen right now verse 44 Luke chapter 8 and again there's a detail in this verse I think that is very important on the screen right now this second woman we're not sure of her age probably middle age maybe a senior adult we're not sure it says she came up let's read that guys let's read that again she came up Thank you, behind Jesus, and touched the edge of his cloak. And immediately, this woman's bleeding. She had an issue of blood, the Bible says. She was hemorrhaging. She had something going on. Her menstrual cycle never cycled off, probably. And uh, she'd be weak and anemic. And the Bible says she spent all her money on doctors, but none provided any remedy. Just provided a bunch of doctor bills. And she was physically and financially destitute. But it says she wanted a miracle. She wanted a touch from Jesus, so she came up behind him. That's a detail of direction. It means Jesus was moving towards the young girl, right? He's moving towards Jairus's house. But this woman, we're not sure of her age, middle age, senior adult, maybe, she's moving towards Jesus. She comes up behind him. She chases Jesus down. In this crushing crowd, this weak woman, this anemic woman, chases Jesus down. What happens? Everybody gets their miracle. It's a multi-generational miracle. The woman is healed and the daughter is raised from the dead. Everyone, the young and the old, everybody gets their touch. Everybody gets their Jesus. Everyone gets their miracle. But notice what Jesus is doing. While the woman gets her miracle, he is moving towards the teenager. He's moving towards the 12-year-old. He is pressing in towards the younger generation. So what I see taking place here in the Bible is this. Multi-generational, but pressing in towards the young. Now, if you're like me and you're a little older than 12... You might go, well, that makes it sound like I'm not the priority in this story. I'm not the, listen, Jesus values everybody. But I'm far from 12. I'm not 22. I'm not 32. i can go going for a long time. I'm not 42. But I think what the Bible's saying, as someone who's lived longer, I should be a little smarter, a little more experienced. And I should have the spiritual wherewithal that I'm okay chasing Jesus down. I'm okay pursuing my God. I'll go after him. I'll fight through the crowd. I want my touch from Jesus. And at the same time, I love he's pressing towards the young. He's moving towards the teen. Why? They're not as smart. They need the extra help. Amen, parents? So we'll value them. I'm just kidding, guys. You're all awesome. But we will value you and prioritize you. And I tell young people in my church, you are not the church future leaders. You're leaders right now. Jesus values young people. The church should echo the values of Jesus. It's not one or the other. It is both. It is what it is. It is what? All right. Okay. Here's one. Here's one. Uh, you want to succeed in your life? You want some good things? You have some goals. So how do you get your goals? Is it, is it spiritual or is it practical? Is it spiritual or is it practical? I mean, if you want to succeed, is it you working hard? working smart, uh, getting more education, or is it God blessing you? Is it God blessing you? Is it God showing up in your life in a supernatural way? So if you have a good thing, why? Okay, answer. I would say if you have anything or anyone in your life that's good, all glory goes to God. If you have good things in your life, good people in your life, all glory goes to God. In the church especially, anything that's worthy and growing and progressing in the church, all glory goes to Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 16, upon this rock, I will build my church. Building the church is his exclusive prerogative. So anything good, all glory goes to God. Amen? Amen. Anything good in my life, all glory goes to God. All glory. At the same time, I will say this, though though it's God's blessing, God seems to leverage my sweat. I find when I work hard and work smart, God tends to bless. I think we see that in the Bible time and time again. God will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves only after we've done everything that God has called us to do for ourselves. you got to get busy. you got to work hard. you got to get back and get that education, get that degree. you got to work. Lazy Christians hate this principle. But there's a lot of believers, man, sit back in mama's basement in a beanbag and pray and read their Bible and play Xbox and wonder why God is not showing up in their life in a bigger way. You've got to get busy. You've got to work hard. Turn to your neighbor and say, hey, he might be talking about you. Good. Turn to your neighbor and say, he might be talking about, don't want to hurt your feelings. You're praying, asking God for A's, but you're studying for C's. It's both. This story about this woman in Luke chapter 8, did you notice what happened? The only one that could help her was Jesus. She'd been to doctor after doctor, no progress, no healing, no help, no remedy, just grew poor. No one could help her. The only one that could touch her and help her and heal her, save her, Jesus. But this tired little woman, maybe a senior adult, has to get through a crushing crowd. I see her, man, elbowing her way through that crowd like an NBA power forward, boxing out for position, man. I'm going to get to Jesus. I'm going to give my miracle. I'm going to give my touch. I'll do my part, then God will do his part. It is both. It is both. When I say three, shout the word both. One, two, three. It is both. It is both. How about this? Giving. Now, some people here when it comes to giving or generosity, uh, it it freaks you out. Don't like when Mac talks about it. Surely a guest speaker talks about it. Uh, Giving, offering time. Is awkward for you. You resist that. I'm not here to judge you. That's just your hang-up. Uh, well, listen, we all have hang-ups, right? Every Christian has at least one hang-up. Raise your, maybe you're great with giving, but you, you know, some other area of your life, maybe it's anger or bitterness or it's lust or whatever. Does anybody here have a hang-up, at least one? Anybody have? Raise your hand if you have at least one hang-up. Raise, everybody up there, raise your hand. So if you're not raising your hand, your hang-up is lying, lying in church. That would be a hang-up. And so if you, like, resist the idea of giving or generosity or tithing, I'm not judging you. It's just just your issue with God. It's your hang-up. Let me help you. I think there's some great reasons why you should give. Maybe this offering will be the catalyst for you to begin to understand the beauty of generosity. So why? Here's, Here's two reasons. Maybe I should give out of obedience. Or maybe I should give out of a sense that maybe God might bless me in some way. So which is the better reason or motivation to give? Obeying what the Bible clearly teaches, because in a great many places the Bible teaches Christ followers were commanded to be generous and, and, and give to issues like this. At the same time, some of the most profound promises of God blessing our lives are attached to the faith step of giving. So which is the best one? The answer would be both. Let me show you an example. And there's a plethora of promises about God showing up in your life in very real ways if you trust Him enough to be generous, to bring the tithe, bring the offering. Here's one. I'll stay in Luke's Gospel where that last story was I told you about. And the speaker here, well, the speaker is Jesus. So now we're studying the sword, living and active. It's getting kind of personal for somebody, a little sharp for someone. But it's Jesus, so ratchet up the credibility as high as it can go. And look at this promise. Look at this promise of blessing that Jesus is about to throw down. Uh, Put it on the screen right now, guys. Uh, In Luke, it says... Verse, chapter six. I want to highlight the first word. In fact, when I say three, l- read that word. Just just one word. I'll read the whole rest of the verse. I'll do the heavy lifting. You do just the one word. Here we go. Ready? One, two, three. Give. Great job. Give. Give. Now listen. I'm a Jesus follower. That's all I need. My King has commanded me. That's an imperative. It's very clear, right? It's very simple. Give. Jesus said to give, so I say, okay, I'll give. I'll be generous. I trust you, Lord. You command me. Everything you've ever asked me to do, it's worked out for my benefit, so you want me to give, give? That could be a one-word verse, and I'm cool. But our God is so gracious and so generous. He attaches a promise. Look what Jesus says. Give, and it will be given to you. You take the first step. You move, then I'll move. There's somebody here because you're resisting this. You're You're living under the tyranny of a self-imposed economic recession. Because it says, give and it will be given to you. And here's how. God's very generous and, of course, richly resourced. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your... It's a lavish promise. He promises to bless me. I don't mean, you know, I'll get a check in the mail or I'll be driving a Porsche. I just mean He promises... To show up in my life in real and powerful ways. But the first step is I give. I'm obedient and God blesses. The answer is both. The answer is both. Can you trust Jesus? That was not rhetorical. Can you trust Jesus? I mean, y'all don't know me. I don't know if you can trust me. I hope you can trust me, but you can trust him. And he promises a blessing. What's the best reason to give? To be generous, to, to maybe be part of this, this, this offering $1.5 million to make some capital improvements to help reach people and, and focus on that younger generation. Man, why? Obedience, yes. Blessing, yes. I mean, I'm not afraid of blessing. I want every blessing heaven has for me. I want everything. Does it make me selfish? Makes me smart. Raise your hand if you'd like every blessing that heaven has for you. Everyone. Smart people, the hands in the air. This is the step we give. So what's the best reason to give? Is it obedience? Is it blessing? Actually, trick question. I think the best reason to give, none of those. I think the best reason as a Christian person, I'm generous, and I bring the tithe, and I bring the offering, is is love. Is love. Hey, grown-up people, have you found out anything or surely anyone in your life that you truly love, they cost you money. I'm just being honest, right? Remember dating that beautiful wife back in the day? Busting out those moves, you had to buy yourself some clothes, right? Had to go pay some money, clean the car, uh, buy her flowers, take her to dinner. She cost you money. Then you married her. Now she really cost you money. Kids, kids. Parents, put your hands together if you love your kids. If you love your kids. Come on. Oh, I love my kids. Love my kids. Woo! Love my kids. Are your kids expensive? Kids are so expensive. I got two of my kids down here, man. Look at, you're expensive, you guys are. I love you. You're cute. You're awesome, but you cause my eyes twitching. You're expensive. Not, to, not just kids. Things. If you have a hobby, if you have an endeavor you're passionate for, right? I mean, medicine, you, you find you'll find the money for the things that you care about. Love. There's an economic factor to money to, to love. It just goes to get Pets. Anybody in the house has a pet? Anybody put your hands together? You got a pet. Woo! Come on. Come here. I love your pets. Ah! Let's survey. Anybody like, no pets for me? No pets for me? No pets for me? You probably don't hug either, right? No pets for me? That's fine. I'm just kidding. All right, all right, all right. Uh, all right. Dog people. If you're a dog person, I want say three. I want you to, wait. No, too easy. If you're a dog person, I want you to bark. Ready? One, two, three. Only dog people. Put your hands together if you're a cat person. Cat person. Why? Why? I don't understand. Why? Cats? Just kidding. kidding. Anybody here have an exotic pet? Exotic pet. You got like a a unique pet? Unique pet? Unique pet? What what do you you have, AJ? Oh, a lizard. Bearded dragon. How about you guys? A cockatoo. Man, a parrot. Okay, that's pretty well. We've had all kinds of stuff. I, I didn't have normal pets as a kid. We have a dog now, but I had iguanas and baby alligators and snakes and turtles and tropical fish, all that weird stuff. But we had a beautiful parrot. We had an eclectus parrot. I have a picture of an eclectus parrot. And she was not just beautiful. She was very gentle. And my kids loved her. we first had her, she's this great bird. And there's this one night. We do do like six services a weekend. So I just finished the Saturday night services. And I'm home and I'm tired. And I look in the bird cage. And her name is Ruby. Ruby is in the cage just rolling around. Just rolling around and she's, she's she's writhing and then she throws up. I didn't know birds could puke. She threw up. I'm like, oh my gosh, the bird the bird's sick. We hopped online and yelled the other symptoms were problematic and so hopped online again and we found a vet. That specialized in birds and it was open 24 hours and there's all kinds of drama because it was the family pet the family pet we didn't have a dog back then so I'm upset I love Ruby Lisa was upset the kids were crying like daddy is she gonna die is Ruby the parent gonna die so upset so we put her in the cage we get a hold of the vet and Lisa an amazing wife Lisa says I'll take I'll take the bird to the vet I know you got these services to mark amazing woman right there but walking out the door my wife said something about this beloved pet that shocked me. It was appalling, disturbing. The kids are crying. I'm upset. Lisa's taking the bird because she's a good wife, but she whispers quietly, "Hey, honey, honey, how much? <laughs> this is our bird. This is our pet. We all oh, the kids are. How much? I was shocked she would ask me how much. More shocking was I had an answer. Her. I'm like, oh, yeah, wow, that's a good question. Because some people, people, you pet people, you spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on your pets, right? I feel like 16 surgeries on your, your dog and plastic surgery on your cat, and, right? Wow! And I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, well, the kids are crying. I'm like, that well, had numbers. So I was just, Shh, okay. Everyone went over that number. Bye-bye, birdie. I take my dog to the vet. I said, i got $500 that you decide whether or not this dog lives or dies. I have $500. Just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> now listen, listen. We had a number. We loved the bird, but we had a number. So because we had a financial limitation, there was a limitation to our love. But parents, that's one of your kids. If it's a kid that's desperately sick, like Jairus' daughter, if you have a kid that's, that's really messed up and sick, do you have a price? No. You spend everything you have. You take out a second mortgage. They can foreclose on my house. I'll eBay every possession. This is my child. This is my child. There is no limit to what I will spend to save them. Now take a logical step with me. You say you love Jesus. You say you love God, but you're not financially invested in what he's doing. Do you really love? The best reason to give is love. And if you're weird, because this is your hang-up area, man, just trust God. Just take a step of faith and begin to give. And Jesus said, where well, your treasure is, guess what? Your heart will follow. Your heart will track with your treasure. And you'll find your love for God will grow. Amen? So the best. Is it obedience? Yes. Is it promise of blessing? Yes. But the best is love. And I, I got look at the clock. I have, I have, I think, three and a half minutes left. So can I do one more? One more? Is it okay? One more? That was terrible. I'm going to do one more anyways. Give me no love on the one more. I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you two more now. Okay, I got three and a half minutes. So let me see if I can wrestle this into to the ground. This is an easy one, very simple. A three and a half minutes should be plenty of time. So here's the last dichotomy in the Bible election versus free will. Easy got this covered three minutes. You, you know that big question? Some Christians are really smart, look at the Bible and go, oh, uh, well I see autonomy. I see God blessing people with, with responsibility. People are free to choose God for themselves. God gave us the gift. Genesis, free will. Other people look at no, oh, wait a minute, wait, wait, I see God electing people. I see God uh, predestination in the Bible. I see I see God choosing people. We don't really choose. God chooses. No, no, we choose. We, so which is it? Is it election or free will? Is it Autonomy, responsibility, or or is God sovereign? I'm talking about salvation, by the way. That's the big question. Salvation. If you're not saved, we'll give you a moment here in about three minutes. Uh, If you're never given your heart to Christ, you can be saved today. It means you're forgiven and qualified for heaven and accepted into God's royal forever family. It's amazing. But if that happens in your life, the dynamic, the duality is is that you or is that God? Is God choosing or are we choosing? Which is it? It's both. That's not a very popular opinion these days among theologians of the Bible, but I think it's both. Why is it both? Because I look at my Bible and I see both. I I, I see election. I see predestination. I see God choosing people. see Jesus talking about who he chooses at the same time. I see God uh, treat people as autonomous creatures with God-given free will and responsibility. It's it's, it's both. Well, David, how can it be both? It can't be both. There's no way I can't reconcile the idea that somehow... Here's the problem it's a double-edged sword it's a double-edged sword it's a book about a God and a God who is unlimited but David I can't reconcile how God gives you both sovereign and how we can also have free will I can't put the two are you shocked that this unlimited great God who spoke and the cosmos came to existence with merely a word doesn't neatly fit into your tiny theological God box all the time are you shocked that the unlimited God does not fit into our finite, limited human intellectual categories? He's too big for that. We serve a very big God. I think it is both. Well, how does it work together when the Bible says something like uh, Matthew 28, last two verses, 19 and 20, Great Commission. When Jesus commands us, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them and the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And if you do that, lo, or surely I'll be with you always to the end of the age. So when Jesus said that... Based on how I view this issue of free will, election, uh, I, that affects how I do that. Great commission thing. Sharing my faith. or if, if I even bother with it. So how does it work together? I'm not sure I know, but here's my best guess of how free will, how the Father's choosing works with our choosing. Um, we love creativity too. I'm not above being creative with a series I want to do. Mac, you had a series called Gone Fish, and we love to fish together. In fact, I'm not sure I'm actually my friend. He just knows I live in South Florida, and the fishing's really good. He comes to see me every year. And uh, we did a series with the terrible title, Fish. Least creative title ever, Fish. Uh, but what the guys did on the stage was amazing. I preached that weekend standing on top of two giant tropical saltwater tanks with live fish. And, uh, is that crazy? I got to read the phone book after I, people walked in and saw that and began to smile. So we taught on the famous fish stories, Jonah and the Whale. Now cast your nets on the other side. And we taught him what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, when he ran into these two fishermen, uh, James and John. He said, hey, 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 guys, come follow me, and I I will make you fishers of men. Remember that one? Come follow me, and and we'll fish together. We'll we'll catch people together. So you choose to follow me, and hopefully people choose to follow my father because God chose them first, and we'll fish together. So I was trying to explain this duality in the Bible Do we choose or does God choose? And we did this this theme called fish. Well, I have three great kids. I have Charlie, who's 15, Victoria, who's 14. They're awesome. And we got a little um, God surprise, who's six, named Zane. He's phenomenal. And uh, Zane was backstage. We do a lot of church. He's back hanging out in my office. He's watching, I guess, the talk. Thank you. That's the right response, by the way. Um He's watching the talk on the monitor, and he said something to my executive pastor, Raul. Raul Raul's a great guy and a great friend, but Raul tweeted this thing. It was kind of a a mean tweet. Here's what what Zane said about his dad as I'm talking about fish. Give me that tweet, guys. Why is he talking about fishing? My daddy is horrible at catching fish. That was a Jimmy Kimmel mean tweet right there, man. I love to fish. I'm somewhat proficient at it. And my little little son said, "Man, he's, he's horrible at fishing." Actually, I thought it was pretty funny. They tweeted it out, but then it hit me. I thought, "Why did he say that? Why did Zane say that?" Because every time I take Zane fishing, I make sure we catch a lot of fish, right, Dad? You want your son or your daughter? To get into fishing when they're little. It's not about quality. It's all about the quantity. You want that rod to bend over and over again. And so every time I took him fishing, I made sure we caught all small fish, but he just caught lots and lots and lots. we catch 20, 30 little snapper or little brim. Why did he say, my dad is horrible fishing? We always catch fish. So the next time I saw him, I said, hey, bud, I saw what you said to Pastor Raul uh, that I was a horrible fisherman. I wonder why you said that because, uh, son, every time we go fishing, we catch a lot of fish. To so which he replied without even looking up, "To Dad, oh no, oh no, we don't catch a lot of fish, I catch a lot of fish. You don't catch any fish, I catch all the fish, I'm a really good fisherman, you, you're a I can't believe, because every dad knows it's going down there, right? Every dad knows it's going down. When he was little, when he's like four years old, he caught the fish. No, I bait the hook. I cast out the line, or I lower the line to the right place in the water column. I'm holding the rod. The fish bites. I set the hook. I reel the fish up just like three inches below the level of the water. Then I put the rod in his hand, put my arms around him. I help him reel. He gets the fish up. I take the fish off the hook. I pose for the fish selfie with him, and then I throw the fish back. He caught the fish! I caught the fish. Every fish he caught, I caught. That could be easier to catch his fish without him in the way. Every time someone comes to Jesus in this church, anytime time someone is saved, and you witnessed, and you invited, and you shared your faith, anytime time, the Father catches the fish. All glory for all that is good to the Father. The Father catches the fish. Like a good divine dad, he wants us to enter into the joy of that experience. He wants us to obey him and be faithful. So listen, oh my gosh, Lake Hills, you guys start celebrating Christmas in July. You love this time of year, and there's something remarkable about this time of year because people that you would invite to church in August or February who have no interest for some reason around Christmas time, the idea of coming to church is more appealing. The idea of coming to church, and the goal is not just to get them to church, it's to get them to Jesus. Bring him to heaven. And you can do this. And your king said, Hey, you want to have fun? Fishing's fun. Well, let's go fish for people together. Let's go fish. How's it all work out? I don't know. God will straighten us out. Do, do we choose? Does God choose? I know this. God has chosen you to be here today. And there's somebody here, if you're not yet a Christ follower, oh my gosh, this. this this could be your day. In fact, I think it is your day. This will be your day to say yes to my remarkable Savior. And today, if you voice a prayer of salvation, I believe this great God will enter your reality and mess you up and save you. The Bible says, "For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved." And I know you didn't come to Lake Hills today thinking today was your day, but this is your day. This is your day of destiny. This is your day to give yourself by faith to Jesus. Well, David, I'm somewhat confused by this duality. It's a two-edged sword. It's, it's cool. God will explain everything someday. Do you choose God? Does God choose you? Well, guess what I think? God's chosen you. He's chosen you to be here and to hear the gospel and have a moment of decision to give your heart to Christ. So I believe if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, today God has chosen you. I just want to pray a prayer with you and show you how to choose him back. I want to ask here that everyone bow their head, everyone close their eyes. If you're already a Christ follower, just pray your heart out because probably close enough for you to touch is someone who needs to nail this down. And if you're here right now and you're not certain and sure you're saved, why would you want to live one more moment of one more day without knowing for certain and sure that you have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ? And then when your life comes to conclusion, your next millisecond is with God in paradise of heaven. If you want to nail that down, I want to lead you in a prayer of salvation. No need to pray out loud. God's a genius. He can read your mind. But if you want to be certain and sure you're saved, you want to choose Jesus by faith, pray something like this. Just take my words, make them your own. Pray up. Okay, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I know you're not surprised, God, but I'm surprised. I didn't plan on making my Jesus decision today, but I'm saying yes. I'm saying yes to all of it. I'm saying yes to forgiveness. I'm saying yes to heaven. I'm saying yes to being part of your family. I'm saying yes to making you the Lord, the master of my life. I'm saying yes. I'm asking you to save me. I know right now in this moment you are choosing me. So because I pray this prayer in Jesus' name, thank you for my salvation. Amen.